Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the program. This is Good Morning New York, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. I'd like to welcome our listeners from around the world and in the United States. So, this will sound... uh, Familiar to New Yorkers, uh, of course, the MTA is at risk of missing its deadline to open the Second Avenue subway. What a surprise. With a year left to finish the new subway line, an independent engineer told the MTA officials last Monday there is moderate risk of blowing the December 2016 deadline among the construction delays or installing commu- uh, communications and power equipment, track work, building entrances at the 72nd Street Station, and bringing power to the 86th Street Station. The city's residential market. Uh, last week saw 20 contracts signed at $4 million and above for the first time in two months. A baker's dozen of those contracts were inked for condos with an average asking price of $7.48 million, five co-ops $6.35 million, and two townhouses $8.65 million. And this is all according to a report last week by Olshan Realty. However, the Manhattan uh, apartment market saw its lowest total sales figures since 2011 during the third quarter, which is usually the busiest part of the year, and many brokers said that uncertainty over the presidential election doesn't bode well for a turnaround. The number of co-op and condominium sales in the borough fell 15.3% from the same quarter in 2015. This, according to the Wall Street Journal, this was the slowest third month uh, the slowest three months, rather, since the quarter of 2011 when the market was still recovering from the commercial uh, financial crisis. Say goodbye to yet another New York icon. The New York Post reports that the Carnegie Deli, which has been serving pastrami sandwiches and fat slices of cheesecake since 1937, will close by the end of this year. The owner, Marion Harper Levine, announced the news telling the Post that, quote, I'm very sad to close the Carnegie Deli, but I've reached the time of my life when I need to take a step back. But unlike other instances of long-running New York institutions shutting its doors, this is not about escalating rent prices because the Post points out in their article the deli's owners also own the building. They just simply want to retire. Isn't that something? But it's sad also because, you know, that's one of the largest institutions or the longest running in my lifetime anyway here in New York City. We have a special guest today, Alex Cohen. He was educated at Yale and Princeton and is an innovative leader in New York's commercial real estate community. He works at CORE, real estate where he develops strategy, advises, manages, and analyzes commercial office, retail and mixed-use acquisition, and land transactions for tenants, landlords, and investors. With a background in urban planning, Alex has 16 years of commercial real estate. We're going to talk a lot about commercial real estate this morning. Uh, Real estate transaction negotiation, totaling 10 million square feet. Alex also has extensive experience in launching international brands in the U.S. and a deep expertise in marketing and repositioning of mixed-use real estate. Good morning, and thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Vince. So, Alex, you know, just a quick question, because you know, most of our program here is geared towards the residential side of real estate. Of course, real estate is real estate, but... <laughs> Let me ask you just to give us a quick um, uh, scenario as to what you do every day in the commercial market versus what we do in the residential market, and that is sell, buy, or rent residential apartments. 
Well, a, a good proportion of what I do relates to leasing space, that is leasing office space and retail space. So I represent tenants. It could be a European fashion company that wants to open a store in Soho, or I could represent a tech firm looking for office space in Brooklyn. I also represent landlords when they negotiate with these types of tenants. And then I work with investors and landlord developers when they are looking to acquire assets in New York. Let me ask you something. And, and this, um, you know, the big topic here at Good Morning New York, but much has been written about Airbnb's impact mm-hmm. on demand for hotels and apartment rents in specific neighborhoods in the city. Okay, so now we are observing the dramatic impact of Airbnb and its peers on second home investment markets like the Hamptons. Okay, I, and you, you blogged about this, I believe. This year, local Hampton brokers report that summer rentals were off nearly 50% compared to past years where the market has been fairly robust out in the Hamptons. Why is this phenomenon so drastically changing our lives? I mean, Airbnb is like almost, you know, like a bad needle. What, what, what is with well, this? Well, it depends on your perspective. I think um, for many people who, for example, in the Hamptons are not at the level of spending $300,000 for a summer house, um, they see Airbnb as a way to give them flexibility. They can commit to certain weekends or certain weeks without feeling that they've put out a lot of money to rent a house for a whole month or a whole summer, which they may not use that much. And that change in demand is what's driven, um, I believe, the, the, the re- repricing of space for second house rental. You know, the Hamptons in particular has always been a, a highly coveted area on the East Coast, as you well know. So, you know, and they always had, it was very difficult to actually go out there for a weekend or a couple of weekends. You had to rent sort of in blocks of Three months, the whole season, mm-hmm. two months, and then it was like maybe you can get away with one month and then whatever. I can understand how Airbnb kind of opens that up to, for people who just want to pop out there for a weekend because they're visiting friends or want to do whatever they want to do. But the hotel industry, you know, it's not that big out there, but but so it's it's got to affect something. And, you know, we, we, we can't deal with it here in New York City, obviously, because it's really against the law, but... I still have to believe that it's going to be changing the landscape somehow, even out there in the Hamptons. Definitely. Uh, And it is true that um, some municipalities like the uh, town of East Hampton have been, you know, really cracking down on what are considered illegal rentals if people do not have a permit to rent out their homes. Um, But as you said, uh, there's not a very large hotel market. Most hotels require a three or four night minimum stay. And uh, Airbnb has kind of opened up. There are many people now who come to the Hamptons for the weekend who've never been there before because they never felt they could afford to stay during the summer. And surprisingly, you know, I've checked out some of the, the available uh, available homes and, and places out on the Hamptons, and the prices are not so crazy. Not as, as, as high or as crazy as I would think they would be. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're onto something. I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> opening up pop-up stores. Now, the reason I want to ask you about this is because you are in the commercial business, uh, and we happen to have a pop-up store right at the base of the building that I work in down on uh, 5th Avenue and 22nd Street. But opening up pop-up stores is a great way to boost your business if enough people can find it because these stores are temporary by nature, and the window for making a profit is small. Picking the right location is critical. Choose well, and your pop-up should thrive. Choose poorly, and you can go out of business. So what? What is? here's another phenomenon that I'm concerned with uh, you know, for longevity. What, what 
is so popular about these pop-up stores? I have to imagine that as a commercial agent, the the leases ha- have to be extraordinarily high on these short-term uh, rentals. For example, the one I, that I used to pass every day uh, going to work was only there for one week. And the store is huge. It's gigantic. Storefront right on the, the corner of 22nd and 5th Avenue. They were there for just one week. Well, there's always been short-term pop-ups, um, particularly oriented towards the holidays, to the Christmas season, and towards Halloween. And that's been a way for landlords mm-hmm. to lease up at least short-term vacant space. But the whole kind of psychology of pop-ups has changed. It now can be a way for a brand to test a new market, to test promotion of a new product. And uh, I just signed a pop-up for Sennheiser, the German headphone manufacturer, which is actually a six-month pop-up. And the goal is perhaps not only to introduce the brand on a retail basis in the U.S. and to have special events like concerts, but also to test the space as far as whether they should commit to a long-term lease as well. But are they able to make any kind of a profit in a short-term pop-up scenario? I mean, six months is fine, but when you see something like one week or two weeks or even a month, is there enough profit in there? I have to think that the the getting the store ready, getting it built out, uh, getting all the merchandise moved in and out, how could there possibly be any kind of profit? It, it, in, in many cases, it's not about the profit from actual sales in the store. It's about really building a connection with consumers. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes, yes, the internet, internet is great for shopping, but having people see, touch, feel, experience a product can generate sales not just in that store, but generate sales on a whole platform. For the brand. For the brand. And that's what, uh, in many cases, the pop-up phenomenon is about. It's not just about profitability at looking at the actual sales in that one store. So it's more store. a marketing you know, gig as well. I mean, exactly. and, and I've, I've been seeing so much more of it lately than I've ever seen before. There's I much more vacancy. There's much more vacancy than we've had before in certain key markets. Which is what I wanted to ask you next. So why the store rents so high if there's much retail, there's so much retail vacancy in, in many of the neighborhoods. And so why are the landlords, and again, you are the expert in, in, in this field with leasing, why are the landlords, you know, pushing people out? And in some cases who have been there for a very long period of time, uh, there's a huge vacancy uh, out there. What, what, what's going on? Well, we've had a really interesting phenomenon since 2008. Uh, we had uh, the dollar drop dramatically in value. Of course, now it's recently recovered against European and other currencies. We had a huge tourist boom in New York. And so we had a very strong retail environment uh, for six or seven years, particularly in the tourist-oriented areas, Times Square, Fifth Avenue, Madison, Soho. And in those markets, values went shot up. And rents were able to keep up with those values because major brands decided they needed to be in those key tourist markets. Mm -hmm. And that pricing increase affected everywhere. It affected neighborhood markets. And in reality, though, at the same time, particularly the last three or four years, the rise of e-commerce and internet sales, and in some ways a a softening in the ability of many tourists to spend as much money as they were spending, um, really is starting to impact demand in these markets. And, you know, while in the past a landlord could say, well, if one company um, isn't successful in my store, I'll just be able to get 10, 15, or 20% more from the next brand. But can they? 
No, that's that's the reality. They can't. Right. We've seen a real softening. Um, there, are, there's a lot more flexibility, particularly where it's a more entrepreneurial landlord. If it's an owner of a building which is a mixed-use building, say in Soho, and they have apartments upstairs that they've had, you know, for many many years, they may not need to have their store bringing in income all the time. If there's an opportunity six months or a year from now to get a very high rent. That's also part of the psychology. I live on the Upper West Side, and, and, and I know this is true for most neighborhoods, but I live on the Upper West Side, and, you know, in my travels to and from work and, and running around as a real estate agent myself, you know, every time I turn around, it's, it appears like there is another store that just cl- – so coming down in the cab this morning, I, I looked out and I looked to what was a restaurant not too long mm-hmm. ago, and now it's completely vacant. Now, I know that particular space has had about four or five different – uh, restaurants in there since I'm living up there for about 12, 13 years. You know, I I get it, and and I get that the the landlords are trying to get more rents or or you know, higher rents in particular places. But you know, the overwhelming feeling for most of us here in New York City is we don't need another bank on a corner, mm-hmm. we don't need another you know pharmacy, a CVS or a drain read or whatever on another corner. So at the end of the day, you know. What are they really thinking about? Are they thinking about the neighborhood people, the mom and pop stores that used to be there that were able to afford to be there? Now, all of a sudden, if it's not a bank, if it's not a pharmacy, you're not going to make it. Well, a lot of owners are thinking about credit, and that's in part what drives all of the leases with banks. They feel even if the bank is not successful at that site, they have their credit on the hook. That bank, if they don't want to, if they want to get out of the space, will need to sublease. They're not going to go out of business. Right. Um, uh, at at the same time. <clears throat> Landlords are thinking about, if it's not a bank or not a Dwayne Reed, what is the long-term viability of the tenant to be successful? And whereas, as you said, in the past, maybe whoever could pay the highest rent mm-hmm. would get the lease. Now, landlords are, th- are seeing you know, many restaurants, many consumer-oriented businesses are not succeeding in this environment. Who really has the business model to succeed at, at any specific location? That's what they are starting to think about, at least those who are more sensitive to the way the world is changing. As you talk to your commercial clients and you're signing them up for leases in these spaces or whatever, what, you know, what, what are they thinking about as far as their success is going to be? Because, you know, the restaurant, let's just use the restaurant industry for an example. I mean, it seems like they come and go, come and go, come mm-hmm. and go. Are they concerned that they're not going to be able to make it in a location? And are there built-in you know, clauses in their lease that says, if you're not going to be successful, we can get you out of this lease? Or do they just roll the dice and say, here we go? They're basically rolling the dice, and they may have to forfeit if they go under their security deposit. There may be a good guy guarantee in place, which means that there's a personal liability as long as they're in possession and actively operating in the space. And they are very sensitive to rent. I mean, rent for a restaurant is its largest expense. So they really have to be very careful as they create a business model um, to be successful in a certain location. And you see a lot of even celebrity-type restaurants who have felt we can't be successful at the midtown rents that landlords now expect. We have to go to alternative areas. Sometimes Brooklyn uh, neighborhoods have become attractive because the rents in many cases, not everywhere, are significantly lower than Manhattan. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back with Alex Cohn in just a second. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A client gave me the best compliment. He said... 
I'm the MacGyver of real estate. True, I'm resourceful and reliable. It was during a short sale that involved two banks and a foreclosure, and it was during the financial crisis. I pulled every trick out of my hat, and we closed the deal. He said, if I was ever stranded on a highway at two in the morning, you'd be the first person I'd call. <laughs> I am known for answering the phone at all hours of the night, but what he didn't know was that I've even helped a client change a tire. I'm Elizabeth Key with CORE, and this is what I do. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We are back. Our panel has joined us. Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Perul Brombat from Compass, and Alex Cohen from Core, our commercial uh, real estate agent specialist at Core. Alex, I want to ask you, so technology has changed the need to go to an office. Most of the work we used to do in an office at a desk can now be done almost anywhere because of our mobile devices as we're all attached to and addicted to and whatever. However, does this mean that we are seeing the end of the traditional office space because we can all work remotely? And how... Has the commercial marketplace been affected by all of this? I mean, obviously, you're out there trying to lease office space, and now mm-hmm. so many people are working from home, so to speak. How has this affected your business? And are we in for a dramatic change here? I think we're already seeing a, dra- a dramatic change. Um, for companies that are service-oriented, say a PwC or an Ernst & Young, um, they really want their employees out in the field. Um, building business, working with clients, and they have reshaped their office space so that there's not the you know sea of uh, uh, workstations or private offices, that the space is about collaboration, that they hotel space and give people more flexibility. That's definitely a trend in those in that industry, but in others, mm. in the tech sensors sen- like Facebook or Twitter, right. it's all about getting their people in the office and keeping them there with lots of amenities that will draw them in and make them feel like this is a place where they want to spend most of their time. You know, it's interesting. I was just having dinner in a restaurant, uh, well, at the Dream Hotel over the weekend, and you look out the window and there's Google right? This huge monster size, and I don't even know how many thousands and millions of square feet potentially, but I've- Millions, I'm look- over over two, about two million square feet. Yeah, yeah it, it looks it. So I'm looking at this building and I'm thinking, oh my God, and I thought the same thing. These people who work for Google are there every day. They're in the office every day. It's like they drink the Kool-Aid. You can't do that kind of stuff necessarily from your home or from your mobile device, really. Exactly. Well, you can work on your own wherever you are, but right. the idea of a Google is that they're getting the best and the brightest 
in one place, and they're going to come up with the next strategy, the next product, right. the next advertising scenario. That's the idea of keeping, as you said, everyone in that, that great space. It's like the days I used to work at IBM, you know, the scientists, as we all used to call them in quotes, the scientists, they would all kind of be in one location. I forgot where this location was, but, and, you know, anytime you would go there on some kind of a plant visit or whatever, they'd be walking around in their pajamas and their, their, their slippers and their whatever, because they work 24 hours a day. They just right. show up because they have a, a you know, a, a phenomenal you know, idea, and all of them together would just kind of bounce off. It was really interesting to watch how some of these people are so bright and so um, uh, into what it is they're doing. So I, I get it from the technology mm-hmm. people here today. What about the popularity of, say, a WeWork? I mean, all of a sudden, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I read the word we work, and I'm like, well, what the heck is that? And then all of a sudden, every time you turn around, there's a new one popping up. I have a friend who works in one of them, and and I've been there. And I got to tell you something: it's an extraordinary place to be. It's mm-hmm. like you're really working mm-hmm. from your own home. Well, it, I think it's been popular for two reasons. First of all, you know, aesthetically, it, it it it's a very kind of creative, open space. There's lots of amenities. There's free food, free drinks. And we're now in an economy where more and more people are not corporate employees. Uh, by uh, the, in 10 years, over half of the population in the, that's working will be either working for themselves, working as a consultant. And so there's a need for other spaces for people to, to work. And then the other big thing is for small and newer companies. If they take conventional office space, they have to pay for furniture. They yeah. may have to pay for part of the build-out. They may yeah. have to make a commitment for four or five years to a space. Right. WeWorks is all about flexibility. Furnished well, and, that, space. and the other thing also that really helps with that is um, the networking component. Um, there's such a social component. Absolutely. And these are small business owners who can really work in, the, like a lot of them are working in tech spaces, for instance, or whatnot. And so there are a lot of other common-minded or like-minded people who are who they're surrounded by. And WeWorks really pushes like happy hours and like meet, like communal spaces and that sort of thing. So that actually really enables them to build their businesses better and faster. And they even advertise. When you go into a WeWork on the video screen or the, on the monitor, you'll see advertising or promotions for, say, a firm that provides insurance and benefits in the WeWork to help other new or small companies get those services. So they're really fostering that type mm-hmm. of development. It's a very collaborative environment. Extremely, and it's a, it's. I think it's a brilliant uh, uh, business idea. So unlike you know residential leases, when we sign you know clients to apartment leases, tell us what we need to know on the commercial side. Are there anything any tips for you know signing a commercial lease that's different than you know signing a residential lease? I mean, well, what do we need to know about that? It's it's completely different. First of all, the term is typically longer. As I said, it can be from three or four to ten or fifteen years in term. The lease is a much longer document, and in addition to working with a broker to negotiate negotiate your deal, you need to have an attorney who has real estate legal experience. If it's in New York, a New York real estate attorney to really review and negotiate the legal points in that document, which is a very important document. It's going to be with you for the full term of that lease. Mm Yeah, again, as I said at the, at the start of the program, I'm not very commercial savvy, but I have a, a, an interest in it because I think it's it's very different from what we do, but I don't necessarily know all the terms yeah. and conditions and all the little nuances to to put leases together. All right, moving on so we can bring the panel in too. So the Second Avenue subway has been the topic of discussion for over 96 years. I read this the other day and couldn't believe that. The line has been in the works since 1920. Everybody thinks that we just began this project five, six, seven years ago. They started in 1920. 
and it is finally nearing completion despite the reports I, I, I reported earlier in the program that delays due to last minute design change, changes and absentee workers. So they've had a whole host of issues with the rebuild of the subway. So my question is, will the Second Avenue subway really, after all is said and done, revitalize the Upper East Side of Manhattan? I think it will if it ever is complete. I was having a very funny conversation <laughs> if, with if, if, yeah, if. right. I was having a very funny conversation with one of my new clients actually, who has lived on the Upper East Side for a long time along the Second Avenue subway, and he's been renting, and he wants to buy just because he's sick of you know just throwing money out the window, and he asked me one of the first questions he asked me was, should I take into account the Second Avenue subway? And I said, I mean, you can if you would like, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I'm, I'm I'm not taking responsibility. I, for I, that. I, I was like, I'm. I used to say how hey guys, great so of a sorry. thing it was, and oh, you know, eventually when it's implemented, blah, blah, blah. And then I found out that the whole 97%, you know, completion that's in that window on the Upper East Side has been there for over a year. I mean, how, you know, so that that doesn't really say anything, but I think it's funny that people still are very into it. And and I think that one day when it is complete, it will make a big difference because when you think about neighborhoods, especially huge neighborhoods like the Upper West and Upper East that are so vast and they're so wide, the Upper East has so many avenues. You have to implement another subway. Well, I was going to say the Upper East Side is really kind of split in two, okay? It's the the West of Third, which is the, the more wealthy, more, you know, uh, affluent. And then there's the Far East, you know, I guess East of Third or Second. So York Avenue, First Avenue, Second Avenue, a whole different ballgame than West of Third. Alex, from your perspective on the commercial side, you know, leasing, you know, uh, office space or even retail, how is the the, the supposed Second Avenue line going to help that effort or is it not? I, I don't think it's going to matter. What's interesting is that in the past, you know, CEOs who generally lived on the Upper East Side or maybe in Westchester and Connecticut, they wanted locations that gave them accessibility, mm-hmm. you know, Grand Central Area or, or East Side Area. You know, now right. the younger CEOs who are driving a lot of growth, they would rather live in Tribeca or Soho or maybe Dumbo. So it, it's really a different, a different world in terms of the decision-making that goes into where companies locate. I mean, in, in our world on the residential side, you know, people are beginning to ask me, so, you know, is the real value right now on the Upper East Side because of this uh, subway system coming up? And, and Matt touched on it a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's a hard one because uh, the the prices have not been as high as other areas. Is certainly as high as downtown or the West Side. For many years, when I first moved into the city, I did live on the Upper East Side, and I lived there for I don't know five or six years. Um, and you know, prices were pretty steep in those days when I was first buying my first or second apartment, whatever. Then they leveled off. I'm going to be very curious to see how this all works out with the subway line if, in fact, you know, it, it opens well, up eventually. To, to Matthew's point, um, if it says 97% complete for a year, by your math, Vince, that means there's two more years remaining before this is actually going to finish. That I being said, that. I right? Because, that. I mean, really, mathematically, it's like if it's ni- been 96 years and it's 97%, then they've got about three more years to actually get this right. So <laughs> that being said, um, you know, it look, it does look like it's going to happen soon enough, right? So from our buyer's perspective on the residential side, 
even if let's say it takes five years instead of three, it, as long as these people are trying to hold this property for five to seven years, which is what we generally advise anyway, I really do believe that there will be a massive uptick because I mean, look at every other neighborhood, every other subway stop, even like Lower East Side, for instance, like here's me plugging my new development, but 196 Orchard sits one block from the subway, mm-hmm. right? So the the allure of that is so much greater than an, other new developments, even in that area that are further from the subway. So, you know, that tends to play such a big role and a big part even in dot price per square foot and how much people actually want to live in that area that I really do believe that, you know, this change has been a long time coming, but it looks like it's happening. And I do think it'll transform the that that part of the Upper East Side. I also think it's um, a very just interesting topic because outside of the just basic transportation, you know, help of the Upper East Side, I always talk to my clients about take it with a grain of salt because yes, it's it's a it's an amazing thing. I mean, how often in our, our city's lifetime does a brand new subway line come about like the seven train with Hudson Yards? And it's gonna you be know, clean and brand new, isn't it? Right, amazing? With new trains, hopefully new <laughs> subway cars and and no, I mean it's it costs billions of dollars and it, it takes a long time to build, like you were saying. Um, but I've always found it very interesting coming from the city and having family that still lives on the Upper East Side that even though there are more affluent, quote-unquote, you know, west of third, you also have the Carl Schurz Park and East End and Gracie Manor and Gracie Court area, which is extremely affluent. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting how that will potentially be more popular because in New York's history, that was made for people who had drivers and still to this day mm-hmm. have drivers. And, you know, co-op's maintenance over there is insane. insane. And, and, you know, speaking of new developments, I'm not going to plug my own, but, but, to, <laughs> but to speak please highly do, of one, do. I love, you know, the Robert Robert Stern building that's that's on East End. Um, oh, you know, talk gorgeous. about a project yeah, that that's absolutely gorgeous, and they didn't you know stint on the prices, and it's selling a lot. So there's something to be said about that area. But as you said, it's because you know the people who migrate to the far east. You know, it's very different from the far west, but to right. the far east, yeah. most of them have drivers. Most of them are not going to be taking the subway train anyway. So there are always, in, in Sutton Place and uh, East End Avenue, there's all all of these little enclaves over there that you know attracted people who didn't necessarily have to take subway trains to get around. But I think it's interesting to think about, like one of my developers was talking about how as, you know, he's always looking for something west of third because that's like gold for a developer. There's never things. Mm-hmm. But maybe the play is after the Second mm-hmm. Avenue subway to go further east towards the east end because I think you will have more affluent or, people who do take the subway. Right. And, and here's the thing. And, or the play mm-hmm. is you do it now. Um, the play isn't to wait. Now that the subway looks like it's going to be within five years, I mean, on a stretch, right? This is the time to really explore what can be built out there. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. 
The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Parul Brombat from Compass, and Alex Cohen also from Core. All right, major urban centers like New York and San Francisco are increasingly becoming inaccessible to all but the wealthy, the New Yorker reports, and the soaring costs of housing in these big cities could be dramatically restructuring how they look. Can New York and cities like it save themselves from an unchecked influx of the super rich, if urban centers don't find a way to keep their own economic success in check, residents might start opting for alternate, like those edge cities that we talked about, I think, last week or the week before. They can't afford to stay here, so they're going to look at all the fringe neighborhoods around. Where do we go with this? So well, I'm going to give oh, – yeah, okay. I mean, I'll give two different perspectives on this. Um, it, we spoke a little bit about it last time with micro apartments and just different ways. You know, people who live in Brooklyn and Queens and areas, you know, that are are far-ish, but it, are affordable. Um, so, funny enough, I saw my parents last night, and they're, you know, thinking about selling their house in the suburbs and moving back to the city. And they— you know, of course, said to me, oh, do you read that article in whatever, whatever newspaper about how New York's just unaffordable for most people? Um, and so it's very interesting that they can still figure it out being empty nesters and, you know, towards retirement. And at the same time, um, I was just, my cousin who just graduated college was telling me at Rosh Hashanah dinner about all of her friends who actually work at Unilever and CNBC, which are in Englewood Cliffs mm-hmm. in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and they chose to live in the city and get shuttled out there. So obviously you can still figure out affordability in New York City. Yeah, and that's a good point. I actually worked with Unilever to create a division in Tribeca because in Englewood Cliffs, they can't get people to work there because most people aren't willing to live in the suburbs who are millennials and they don't want to have to take a shuttle bus, you know, 45 minutes and deal with traffic to get to Englewood Cliffs. So for companies like Unilever, it's still about the city. Uh, And I feel that that's a millennial trend that is affecting, you know, all demographics. Um, I just want to add about New York, you know, it's not necessarily that you have to jump to the suburbs to find affordable housing. We are working with a lot of clients buying properties in the Bronx 
because there are Interesting. not only single family, but uh, multifamily investment properties where you can live as well as rent out units for under 650000 three unit in the, in the Bronx. No, that's the new millennium. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, we're going to do a show on that coming up, but the, that, that new whole South Bronx development um, situation is going to be absolutely unbelievable. You know, it begs the question because people ask me all the time, who though wants to move there and who though wants to live there? And, and, and I'm saying, listen, who wanted to live anywhere in the past, right? I mean, you can go on and on about Brooklyn neighborhoods, Harlem neighborhoods, Queens neighborhoods, but you know, as the years have gone on, people are going wherever they need to to find affordable spaces and to, you know, create new neighborhoods. And they've done that. Well, like I've always said in the past, coming from a real estate family, um, our Jewish holidays are always incredibly interesting because <laughs> we, you know, my uncle and my dad Table and talk. all the commercial people in my in my family will then, you know, argue with the residential people. And we all talk about how, and th- this topic came up about how just it all centers around the hubs of New York where people work. Mm-hmm. Because if you move Midtown, if you move it elsewhere, people will move elsewhere, for example. So I think it's all because people always talk about how long it takes them to get to their office. So I think it's going to be really interesting in the next 20 to 30 years with places like Hudson Yards, where hubs are moving from Midtown further west into Hudson Yards, or you know, companies like JP Morgan are moving tons of you know offices and sectors of the company to somewhere like Metrotech in Brooklyn. So I think as these companies are learning and evolving and trying to work with the affordability of New York City and the times, you know, say a huge company like a Yahoo moves their headquarters to Harlem, I mean you might have a bunch of people living in Stamford because you could take, you know, the Stamford Metro North directly to 125th Street. You just never know how it will evolve, I think. It's it's true. Um, you know, a lot of people's choices is always based upon where they work, how they need to get to work, you know, all that stuff. But and we see it all in New York, especially in real estate. Let's talk about Dumbo. Dumbo is short for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass, and it's a neighborhood in the New York City borough of Brooklyn. It encompasses two sections, one located between the Manhattan and Brooklyn bridges, which connect Brooklyn to Manhattan across the East River, and another that continues east from the Manhattan Bridge to the Vinegar Hill area, as Alex was mentioning earlier. The neighborhood is bounded by Brooklyn Bridge Park to the north and Brooklyn Bridge to the west, and Brooklyn Heights to the south and Vinegar Hill to the east. All right, so I have my own feelings of Dumbo. I've been working with a client out there now for a couple of months. I absolutely love it. I think it's mm-hmm. it's it's so sort of undiscovered, but yet it is discovered, but lots of people don't know about it. What in your opinion is what is really so special about Dumbo? I think proximity. Proximity is one of the biggest things. It's so easy to get to Dumbo and back into Manhattan. Um it's it's a it's kind of a quiet ish enclave in and of itself as much as it's so close to also these Brooklyn neighborhoods that you mentioned Mm -hmm. Um, it's you know it's kind of become a community of its own and I sold an apartment there the first one I sold I think was back in at like 2006. Mm. So then it was like a Starbucks was moving in, yes. you know, and it was it was at a time where it was like, look, even a Starbucks is happening, other things will happen. There was like, <clears throat> I can't remember, it was like some furniture store or whatever, but there were like two or three little things showing up in that area. And there was just this promise and a hope of what this neighborhood would be, but proximity was still actually attractive even 10 years ago. 10 years later, you know, there's juice shops and little markets and, you know, it's really, really cool. And there's like 
such beautiful developments happening there. Like 200 Water Street is one of my favorites. A yes. new recent additions to that area. 51J. Uh, yeah. And the Pier House yeah. is incredible. incredible. I mean, it's I'm doing an a deal at 50 Bridge. It's it's an yeah. amazing, amazing I just building. sold I just at think 79 Bridge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We always talk nice. about prices in Brooklyn, and I just think it's unbelievable, the prices of Pier House, um, you know, which are right on the water. Uh, I mean, incredible and astronomical, the price for a foot, and they're getting it. Um, they're getting yeah. it. I've they're always, it. I've always had a saying about that area with my clients and just with myself, and that's, um, you know, there are three neighborhoods that I just think are always going to be extremely popular, and that's Brooklyn Heights, Dumbo, and downtown Brooklyn, mm-hmm. because, you know. I have clients who live in all of them, and even downtown Brooklyn, it's a little more financial district e. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can walk a couple blocks right to Brooklyn Heights and feel like you're in, you know, just everything. Well, the train access there West is, is incredible. Is incredible. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I just think it's. Um, I always call Dumbo the Tribeca of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and and I it just think feel that way. you know, and it's always. I just think if you look at Manhattan and how it's formed, and Brooklyn and Long Island City, anything that's along the water, mm-hmm. if you have doable transportation. It's always going to be, be popular yeah. because Greenpoint's gorgeous, but the G is awful. So you know, that's and Cobble why Hill is beautiful, awful. also. But Cobble Hill is just you know a couple of steps exactly. further, and train mm-hmm. access is just a little crazy. But when you're walking around in Cobble Hill, it's magnificent. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And whenever I go to Dumbo, I always take the F. Yeah. And yeah. If whenever, and it's the first stop. Yeah. Like, yeah, what could be better than that first stop? Right. It's right. great. And where Absolutely. it stops in Dumbo is pretty accessible to wherever you need to go because it's not that big of a landscape. I'd like to tie that in with our Second Avenue subway talk, though. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, if you really look and assess what really drives value in this town, really accessibility to subway is a big deal. Yeah, well, that that's what I wanted to talk about because, you know, there are there is accessibility in and out of Dumbo, not a lot of it, but there is, and it's mm-hmm. it's actually, um, I think it's kind of nice because it keeps it a little more quaint and a little right. more it quiet. Feel, it really feels like an enclave yep. because it absolutely you do does. have the accessibility, but then you have barriers like the bridges that kind of keep it more self-contained. Mm-hmm. I think that's what separates it from other some other Brooklyn neighborhoods. I remember the first time I went there is when I first came into real estate 50, almost 15 years ago, and I and I was walking around. I forgot, We went to see some new development that was happening out there, and I thought, oh my God, what is this place about? Because it wasn't as built up as Perul said before. You know, they, mm-hmm. There was a Starbucks coming or whatever was already there, but it was not that built up, and I thought, well, you know, this can go in one of two directions. Either it's going to become great, or it's going to really kind of flop. And I'm very happy to see how great it has become. And again, I've been spending so much time out there uh, recently that um, I have a whole new perspective on it. And I think it's really, it's interesting from a cultural perspective, cuisine. uh, Go ahead. Well, I I, I do want to tie in one interesting, slightly negative aspect of our very positive conversation of Dumbo. So I just think it's really interesting when people are moving here, the factors that they think about, because I, I recently got a new client that was referred to me by, I have a bunch of buyers who live in Europe and the Middle East who buy with me sight unseen, and they either use it as investments or they you know travel here a couple of times a year for work and they just don't want to stay at a hotel. And the, I have these new clients who actually are based in Tokyo, and we were talking on WhatsApp, and they said to me, you know, right off the bat, 
we want Dumbo or, and Pearl and I were just talking about this. We want a new development in Dumbo, Fort Green or, um, or Borm Hill, like those three neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of friends who lives over there. And then the train crash in Hoboken happened. Yeah. And they, they, I, like an hour later, they WhatsApped me and they said, we're having second thoughts about being across the river. So I thought that was really interesting, just another aspect of living in a great neighborhood that's potentially not on the island. Because I think that when things like that happen, it definitely scares people a little bit. Yeah, but, but you know what? We take the train on this right. island, so if yeah. the train's going to crash, it's going to crash. Yeah. I, I agree. Also, I just think it's interesting when people outside yeah. of the city And with the transportation apps, like Via, like mm-hmm. Lyft, I mean, people are really changing how they're getting around. That's why a lot of commercial office development now in Brooklyn is in areas that really aren't accessible by subway, whether right. it's Red Hook, whether it's Kent Avenue in Williamsburg or the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They're looking at the demographic yeah. of Brooklyn employees who are commuting by bike, by Via, by other, other modes as well, not just subways. We have about a minute left before we go to commercial. What's happening in that area from a commercial perspective? In a lot of development in Dumbo. You have the Empire Stores project. You have Dumbo Heights, which has attracted Etsy for its headquarters. That, that's amazing. Huge yeah. WeWork uh, installation, West Elm, with its store and headquarters at Empire There's Stores. A, we work out there? Yeah, the WeWork is a building and a half in the Dumbo Heights project. And uh, uh-huh. I was in that Dumbo location the week it opened. They were 95% occupied you know, opening week. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to check that out this afternoon. In fact, I'm leaving the show today and getting in an Uber car and going right out to Dumbo because we've got to do a walkthrough. But um, it, it, the, the whole area is is quite interesting and, and from a growth perspective, but I didn't know that WeWork was there. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go to break. We have to uh, take this time, uh, this break. We're listening to Good Morning uh, New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com In my opinion, the referral business is the biggest compliment that a real estate broker can have. I had clients that I actually didn't even help them find their home, but they referred their sister to me, and they commented on my professionalism, my knowledge, and understanding of the market, and that something I did stuck with them. they become friends over the past 15 years and have referred more than 12 deals to me with friends and family. The fact that they think of me first and trust me with their family is really, really cool. I'm Steve Snyder with CORE, and this is what I do. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back. And last week we talked about... um, this a little bit, the Highline. It's not news that the arrival of the Highline has spurred a real estate boom around the park, not to mention uh, ever-rising prices around that Highline. But Street Easy crunched the numbers to examine the park's so-called halo effect, meaning how much the success of the elevated park has affected pricing in the surrounding area. Why is the why is this Highline so seductive? I mean, you think about where it is. For those of you um, listening in who are not familiar with New York or its landscape, we're talking about the very far western part of the island of Manhattan, where it was abandoned for many years, lots of train tracks, uh, kind of scary for a long, long time. Uh, but now it has become, in the last 10 years or so, uh, the place to be. And the Highline is open how many years? Four or five it's been a little seven, while, actually. I think it's about Is seven. It that long? Okay. But here's the thing: I have to say, I was a naysayer. I have to admit so that when I. when the pricing over there in West Chelsea was going bonkers for the time, and the Highline was still not even built yet, I'm like, it's a little railway with a garden on it. Like, why is this such a big deal? And I am eating my words. So, <laughs> it is. <clears throat> you know, the Highline is so beautiful, and it is it. You know, all the people who actually saw the value in it and kind of jumped on that bandwagon, which I thought was this big marketing, um, has now transformed that whole area into like some amazing restaurants and it's quiet over there. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, being someone who also is not a huge fan of the Highline um, and never was, I do really enjoy it when we used to have our office in Chelsea. I would actually walk um, if I had time after work, I'd walk up it all the way to Hudson mm-hmm. Yards and mm-hmm. then walk to the one. And I mm-hmm. really, truly enjoyed not only the views, but but I actually would people watch some of the tourists and I, and I liked I, it. But I also think that's about I think all I get out of the highlight well, is people watching. So because here's there's quite a, a calamity of so <laughs> since it already <laughs> has been a few years. I think what it's become is a hub for fantastic architects. So mm-hmm. I've learned that. The reason the prices are so incredibly high over there is not actually from the Highline anymore. Originally it was, but now it's because that's where every architect and developer wants to build because of, you know, just these incredibly star architects, these star architects who have built these insane buildings like the Zaha Hadid building or like 551 West 21st. I mean, these are major architects who have done things around the world. Think about, you know, where else in the city do you have? Have one section that has so many different famous architects. Well, someone came up with a plan to use these elevated, you know, rail old rail tracks and make it a park. So someone did that, and it became popular. Then all of a sudden, as you say, the architects and star architects and whatever else are designing buildings. What was it? The Caledonia was the first condo yeah, building. I, 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 think I bought built there. I bought into the Caledonia, luckily yeah, pre-development. Smart. And the reason right. was because so many of my residential broker friends were actually buying apartments for mm-hmm. themselves there. So I knew something was happening. Just yeah. wanted to say, as someone who was an early yeah. person in the, yeah. in the area. The Highline experience is what I think is so unique. You can go to parks. There are a lot of great parks Anywhere. in New York. Yeah. But to be in a park and to be elevated. And, and to above have the water street. views and beautiful yeah. sunsets. And, you know, and I, I, you know, initially when the Highline opened, they didn't have like all the food vendors and things. And I thought that that was necessary mm-hmm. now that they have that and that's building. 
um, I think it, yeah, it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful little. Well, what do they say? Build it and retail will follow. I mean, that's like that. That's similar in, in a lot of uh, yeah. Locations. And also think of what it's become in terms of just connecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it connects wow. meatpacking district mm-hmm. to Hudson Yards. Yeah, like that's that's pretty incredible. It really right. isn't. But it's you know a great what, connector. What's amazing though, You're right. is that whoever had the foresight to get like these big developers to build there, I mean, the big architects, the architects mm-hmm. to build there with the vision of the High Line. Like some of these buildings were precursors to actually one, knowing what the High Line was famous, going to turn out to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the most famous was, is the IAC building, yeah. which Frank Gehry designed right. for Barry Diller, and that was done before the High Line. Absolutely. After that building, Barry Diller became very committed to the High Line. I was thinking of the Jean Naval building, yeah, those which were was before. also the 211th Avenue. Avenue. The I mean, these were all buildings that went up before the Highline was finished. I also I also really liked to plug, like like you said, to plug our developer that we work with related. I always really enjoyed listening to Stephen Ross and, and them um, and Jeff Blau about how they figured out that West Chelsea was gonna be the it area. I love when they tell the when developers tell these stories about how, you know, they would drive through these neighborhoods when it was nothing and they were like, This gas station cannot just be a gas station forever. <laughs> and then over time they buy it. And they listen, build something it, there, it, and people it, it and people are so turned off. I think by new developments who are not in the industry so mm-hmm. much. And what I have to say to them in situations like that is, this is something that's creating jobs. It's helping the economy. These are great things. I mean, something like Hudson Yards is going to have so much retail, so much off, so much office. It will help the economy. It'll help jobs. And it'll the help fact employment. is, it was no man's land. Like, who did anything over yeah, there? Exactly. So it's actually <clears throat> utilizing the space and beautifying the city and Absolutely. creating another cultural center. <clears throat> and creating another neighborhood, as yeah. we, we talk about so, all the time on this program, each one of these things creates a new neighborhood and you're right it was never never land over there and it was not yeah. kind of it was kind of spooky and you know all of a sudden <laughs> uh, it's become the it place to be and I got to tell you something far and again not so close to transportation you know the train is on 7th Avenue you know so you're, you're walking several long blocks over there but for wh- whatever it's worth people don't mind it because that's where they want to be that's where a lot of uh, new places have opened from a restaurant perspective, cultural perspective. There's so many art galleries over there. It's just an amazing place to be, and it feels really good. And that's what I like about New York City. If something feels really good in this very big city, then you know they're onto something. Anyway, uh, while the high-end luxury market may have experienced a slight slowdown of late, sales on apartments in the mid-market range, which is between one million and four million, believe it or not, are moving along swimmingly. And this swimmingly comes from the real deal. Okay, they they reported that this week. There has been some hesitation, though, on part of buyers, even in the mid-market range due to the slowdown in the high-end market, but that hasn't necessarily impacted sales yet. Why do you think that is? And how is the inventory right now in the $1 to $4 million market? So to quote my client, who's a professional investor, and I say that because he used to work for a hedge fund in their real estate division, and he then went on his own because he just made so much on his own. Um He's someone who always pulls the trigger with me, and we actually had an opportunity in a new development where the last unit was taken over by the bank, and not many people knew about this. Um, And it was taken over by the bank, and they released it for a certain price so that the developer wouldn't have to owe them 
you know, any major penalties. Um, so it was quote unquote distressed. And why I bring this up is because even with that, which is a gold mine for most investors, he didn't pull the trigger. And that's because he truly thinks that even though we won't have a 2008 situation, there will be that slight correction eventually. And developers are going to be the first person that get hit. And I also think that the high end market is you know, follows that. And even the middle market, which we're talking about, will eventually follow that a little bit, I feel, because when there's a correction, it has to affect more than just one little thing. I just want to say, when we have a correction, it affects all asset classes. I mean, the stock market, mm-hmm. um, bonds. Mm-hmm. And I just feel, if you look at New York, and I don't know the location of this project, I think New York residential real estate in prime locations statistically has withstood the ups and downs of the economic cycle more than almost any other asset class. So I'm a little surprised. Well, well I didn't withstood, the, well, yes. But withstood and did, also done very well yes, in good times. So here's, so here's the, to your point, what mm-hmm. I didn't finish was that he didn't, the reason he didn't pull the trigger was because he truly feels that this is only the first little minor correction and that when you have a real correction it will actually correct, and he's waiting for that. Well, if you look for that kind of a buyer, right? Yeah. It's different, right? It's different. It's different. Yeah, right, I'm talking about more long term. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. What he's looking at is Short is term. is if there is a dip, then there's going to be more opportunity. So he's not going to pull, pull the trigger on something that's an earlier opportunity. Is is an individualized point of view to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. However, you know, on the development side, you know, recently I saw a Miller, Miller Samuel's report. Uh, that talked about how much inventory is held back by developers mm. and not and that is unreleased onto the market. So it, this iteration, this time, um, I do believe that there is a lot more new development inventory that has not been released onto market than there was in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So it'll be it would be really interesting to see if there were to be a correction sooner than later, how that affects all the loans that these developers have on all those units and how that would play out. So there is, there is an interesting delta that that there's a potential of happening to this investor's point of view. All right. Anyway, unfortunately, we are out of time. That is the show for today. Thanks for joining us. You can catch us anytime on podcast or on the website, voiceamerica.com or vincerocco.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us and have a great day, everybody. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.